If your community experiences an active shooter event that's a true mass casualty incident, your hospital may become overwhelmed. Problems with uh, inability to take care of the number of people, security issues, reunification, media management, and it's really easy to say that those are hospital problems. But who are they going to call? And when they call you, are you going to make it better or worse? That's today's topic. Stick around. Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey. I am joined here by uh, my good friend, Ron Ottobacker, sitting next to me, Pete Kelting across the table, and Adam Penley uh, with us in the house as well. Uh, all of us uh, part of the instructor cadre here at C3 Pathways. And today's topic, we're going to talk about some of the special considerations that need to be thought of for hospitals when you have a mass casualty that goes beyond the typical. So, that, you know, for, for those that aren't aware, uh, the median number shot is three, and of those three shot, one, one is killed. And that is not typically a mass casualty incident, as we, as we all know. But when you have one of these events that's a true mass casualty incident, 15, 20 people shot, that can be very overwhelming for small community, and in some cases, even metro community can get overwhelmed as well. And it creates some unique circumstances and challenges for the hospitals. And so we're going to talk today about some of the things that will come up that you should anticipate and some of the things that uh, you may not have thought of. And it may technically be a hospital responsibility, what we might be in a position to really help out. Let's start with the basics of the hospital is overwhelmed to the point that they're unable to care for patients. Um, Pete, you want to start us off a little bit, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you, you were mentioned earlier, right before we went off air, the example of the one police officer that, that got shot. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that can lead to a hospital being so saturated that they can't care for any more patients. Uh, Bill, just by mere proximity um, to the event, potentially, where you have um, the, you know, the, the response of, of EMS bringing patients there and then uh, self-transportation. You know, we have several events, unfortunately, across the country that we can point to with um, self-transportation. Uh, with a police officer to get shot, you know, that we, we bring a, uh, you know, an officer to that location. It just brings a whole lot of challenges to the hospital when they immediately are seeing that patient surge. Yeah, and I, we actually, um, one of our other instructors can tell a story about an officer that was taken to a hospital that was quite overwhelmed, and they had to turn him away. You know, imagine that, a police officer shot on your incident, and not that the hospital, they want to, you know, be there for us, obviously, um, but they've just been so overwhelmed with patients that they have to uh, send that officer with a gunshot wound maybe somewhere else. And I know we're going to get into it as we continue to talk, but, you know, integrating with your fire EMS folks that typically do have some sort of system in place to understand the distribution of the hospitals, they might be able to help with that. But to Pete's point, your system where you know what hospitals have received which patients might not catch up with the fact that there's been so many self-transports as well. So it just requires a lot of recognition that um, that they're going to potentially have a problem with patient overloading, um, and, and it's going to be police and EMS working together to make sure uh, that we we distribute patients and people are going to the right place. Ron, opening thoughts on patient overload. It can happen very easily, um, depending on 
who's moving the people. Um, you look at some of the events we've been involved with that, you know, the number of people that are moved, the number of people that are unaccounted for that move, like Pete said, you know, we can account for the ones we touch, but we can't account for the others. And the hospital's still receiving them anyway. So they may have put themselves on divert. And if we're not in that system to understand what they've diverted, we just continue slapping on other victims to the diversion and they can't handle it. They're overwhelmed. We've got to have a better way of communicating and make sure we're assisting in the situations that are hindering it. I think I think it's really important to take a moment and talk about, in a perfect world, how the system is supposed to function. EMS has mass casualty plans that they lay out, and generally speaking, uh, as the, one of the duties of the transport officer is to communicate with the hospital or hospitals that are targeted for transports, and to fairly evenly distribute. Uh, the patients to those various hospitals. So if they've got three or four hospitals that they're transporting to, you don't send all the reds to one and all the greens to another one. You try to distribute them out, you know, red, yellow, green to this one, red, yellow, green to this one, red, yellow, green to this one. Now that's perfect world pie in the sky. And that doesn't always pan out that way. Um, sometimes you have to transport two reds at a time or a red to yellow, and you, you may not have the right balance. The other factor to consider, a lot of communities will pull the hospitals to find out what they feel like they can take. What can they manage? How many reds, how many yellows, how many greens? And so now you're you're trying to distribute them evenly, but you're trying to match up with what the hospitals can take. And that's where the other piece of this, um, the, the wheels start to come off the, the bus, so to speak, is that doesn't account for self-transports. You know, people who have fled the scene either of their own power or somebody has transported them in a private vehicle to the hospital. Uh, it doesn't account for any law enforcement transports that have, may have been done. Most law enforcement officers that end up transporting patients, that's not their normal mode of action. Something in their mind has gone wrong, and they've concluded that the best way to try to save this patient's life is for them to transport it. And they have no, no real awareness of how a hospital can become oversaturated. And it's really easy to think, but yeah, that's really the hospital's problem. Well, what is in the best interest of the patient? You know, Adam, to your example about the police officer that was shot, he was actually shot in the neck, which is a was a fairly serious injury. However, the bleeding was controlled. Mm -hmm. And the hospital that he initially was transported to by his partner looked at it and said, he is going to get better care by taking him further down the road to another hospital. We are completely overloaded. And I, and I think sometimes we have to kind of remember at the end of the day, our focus is supposed to be on survivability of the patient. What's in the best interest of the patient? You know, whether that hospital was fully prepared, fully staffed, whether they've done this, done that. Okay. We can hash that out after the fact, but right now, what is in this best interest of the patient? There's been examples of hospitals that had a very large number of patients transported because they were very close to the incident, 
and they stabilized those patients, but they weren't able to take care surgically care uh, uh, surgically care for those patients, and those patients then had to be transported by helicopter and by ground ambulance to other hospitals that were further away that could actually care for them. So I, I think it's important to keep in mind the way the system is intended to work, but when we get true mass casualty events, where you know the chaos is reigning that system tends to break down and we don't have a good answer for it. I don't think. And how to accommodate for all those people that self-transport. Well, so, I, mean, I mean, we got to look at, you know, when does the hospital's problems become our problems from our, our active shooter good event, point. Right. So, I mean, most jurisdictions here locally, we, we all know that we train once a year uh, with our local hospitals across three to four counties of M MCI training. Um, when do we, they all stand up normally their own incident command systems within their structure when do we step in to be a part of that? Or when do we request request somebody from them to be a part of ours? So we have to see when we integrate that response uh, together with ours. Sure. And, I, and you hit on a great point. I mean, one of the first tools in the toolbox is this integrated training. So just to get law enforcement to understand that fi the fire EMS interface with the local hospitals and their distribution system, that that exists and that it is possible for a hospital to get overwhelmed. And just getting law enforcement to recognize and understand that's the first thing. But now imagine that in addition to the kind of the three normal scenes you're used to, the, the crisis site, what transportation the suspect used, where they came from, their home address, that sort of thing. But now you have these additional locations that you're, you know, you mentioned it just made a light bulb go off. You mentioned that, hey, this hospital may have taken too many patients, stabilized them, and now they're transporting them to other places. So even, you know, are we talking about traffic routes and traffic control and, and um, you know, you're urban hospitals that are your level one or level two trauma centers, oftentimes they have a higher level of security. They might hire off-duty law enforcement officers. Or they might have their own police department. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but then the third or fourth down the line hospital that's a little further out, that is typically a community hospital, but now they're taking more patients than they're used to, they're going to be calling for help. And the only people they know to call are going to be you know, local law enforcement. So it does become a point at which all of those things you know, circle together. But again, kind of the tools in the toolbox, the first thing is to understand that those kind of things can happen in a complex incident and getting law enforcement to understand that your day in and day out, you know, when I was an officer, I, I knew that if I had this type of patient, you know, maybe a, you know, a drunk who's been injured or something, I knew that it, to go to this hospital because they handled it really well. Well, some of that stuff, you know, you might have to work around knowing that this, the system is under a strain. I think it's also really important to talk about from an incident management perspective, our responsibility for accounting for all of the patients that came from our scene. And I think that's something that we forget about. If we've transported them through the EMS system, the transport group supervisors should have a log of each ambulance that left, how many patients that they, they took, what the color of those, the severity of those patients, red, yellow, or green, and what hospital they went to. They're probably not going to have a name to go with it. I mean, that's just, the reality. We hope that they get a triage tag number, but the truth of the matter is that's probably not going to happen either. You're going to know that Ambulance 42 went to Memorial with a red and a yellow, and that's about it. Uh, and so trying to match that up after the fact can be a challenge. But then when you factor in the people who self-evacuated and, and transport it on their own. So I, I do feel like there's a, 
a part of this in our planning for community MCIs where we haven't, as EMS, fully wrapped our arms around how do we close the loops with the hospitals on accounting for the patients? Who did you receive? How many did you receive? And of course, the first time you call over there, they're going to tell you HIPAA. We can't you know, tell you a damn thing. And I, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I feel like just on the not overloading on a severity level, there's a, there's a couple of basic gaps that we have in the fundamental planning and assumptions that we've made over the years. And not just even in active shooter events, but just in really any, any mass casualty incident where you're going to have some component of self-evacuation. How do we account for everybody? Right. Okay. The key is understanding the capabilities. You know, if you are around a level one trauma center, they may be, as in Central Florida, the only level one trauma center in 10-county area. This incident is probably going to be their focus, but understanding what their capabilities are and understanding that as you see all these people going, we don't have to, we're not like fire rescue where we have to have direct conversation, but we're going to end up sending from law enforcement someone there to start tracking where these patients are going and understanding that they may have to, like we said, transport some of these people off to another facility for surgery or something like that. The big thing is with this integration is having an understanding of what each other does, what their capabilities are, who do we talk to when we get to the hospital, right. knowing where to go to say, hey, can you help me? I'm looking for this information. And that's that's a key thing. Yeah, I mean, at a minimum, our logistics of our event is going to operate in, in their backyard in the hospital. We have you know potential evidence to collect off the mm -hmm. patients been transported. Yes. We have uh, witness interviews to to yes. uh, conduct. Uh, probably our family reunification may involve finding individuals at that hospital. Uh, there's you know several logistics, and then you know we hope what what if that hospital actually then has to incorporate a potential threat? You know, is, have we transported a bad actor? You know unknowingly or is that hospital actually picked out as another soft target of of the attack for whatever the motive is of that attacker so. which is a perfect tangent to take us to our next component of this which is the security issue of that hospital uh, you know i ron i think you said it if they're a big level one urban trauma center they're going to have some level of security i mean frankly this day and age even most community hospitals have some security on staff, though it may only be one or two people. Uh, but what are we going to have to do to assist in securing the facility from threats, securing the patients that we've transported, uh, providing traffic control, crowd yeah. control? Isn't security going to be something that's going to end up on our backs? And again, a lot of hospitals have limited surge capacity. So the only surge capacity they're going to get is from local law enforcement until they can get either contract security to help come augment them or move people from other facilities within that organization to there. But usually it's going to fall back on local law enforcement, whether it be for traffic control, whether it be for protection at the ED right then, because we don't know where, you know, what the status of the bad guy is mm -hmm. and, so there's a lot of things that they're thinking about, too, that we've got to be a partner with because they don't have the resources to expand out to that. Where's media going to go? Where are all the people looking for their loved ones? Where are they going to go? Who's going to help them 
you know, who would, like we said initially, who are they going to call for help? It's going to be us and we've got to be prepared for that call. Right. Absolutely. And I think, um, and I look at it in a, a, that the people that were potentially injured in the active shooter event, they're now our responsibility, right? They've already been traumatized once and the hospital is going to do their level best to provide the best medical care they can. But if now they're also, um, again, there's maybe still an unknown threat. There may be media that's trying to get in to, to do uh, interviews at an inappropriate time. There might be family members that are otherwise estranged day to day, but now they're showing up at the hospital because they've heard that this event has happened. So even though it's, again, it's a, a lot of times a hospital responsibility, once we are managing the larger event, they kind of fall under our umbrella too. You know, I think we have a responsibility to those that have been injured that are at the hospital. And we especially have a responsibility to the families to try to piece together quickly, like Pete was saying, uh, who was, who is where, you know, so, cause we, uh, reunification is part of the response. It is a, it is a response function and we have to get it set up quickly. And we talk about, you know, accounting for folks so we can, you know, give families the best information we can right at the scene. It's interesting that you, uh, mentioned that element, Adam, of, uh, of getting at the media and the hospital there was a uh, um, a sad, I would almost say, despicable incident where media pretended to be a family member of a minor to try to gain access to the child's bedside to get uh, video. Mm -hmm. And presumably, if the child was able to talk, try to get an interview, but mainly just get video of a, of a hurt kid. Uh, and they... They were not successful, but it to me that that just points to the need for uniformed law enforcement presence to be at every hospital that receives patients from from an event. We had, uh, and I'll, I'll, I won't forget this. We were doing some training in an area that happened to be fairly resource rich, and they said, "Look, we've we'll have enough. Ten minutes in, we'll have enough cops." Is there any reason why we can't send a cop with every ambulance? And we said, no, you know, of course not. And but tell us why. And he said, well, if there's dying declarations, if there's comments, witnesses, things like that, that officer can document that during transport. If there's an opportunity to secure their clothing and evidence, the officer can do that. If there's information about who they are and a name or ID, the officer can get that. Um, and then the officer arrives with the patient and can continue to the, with the patient into the ER and stay at the patient's bedside to provide that protective element. But it also becomes the access point for information for us on the public safety side to reach back out and say, who was it that you transported? Mm. And to get those names without having to put the hospital in the position of, well, you know, we want to tell you, but we can't right. tell you because of, because of HIPAA. And you're like, you know, screw your HIPAA. I've got a criminal investigation. Right. I'm, I'm working here. So I, I thought it was a really fascinating idea. Now, again, this particular community happened to be very resource rich and so that was something that they could they could afford to do. I'm not sure how many communities that extends to, but maybe 20, 30 minutes into the event, you do have enough sure. officers. I think oftentimes you see at some of these events, because we all 
all your public safety agencies want to respond and help. And I think more often than not, you have resources that are looking for a job to do. And it, it's part of our earlier conversation that, you know, you got to have resources that you can carve out other jobs that need to get done. And even if you can't send an officer with every transport unit, all those tasks that you just said are something that needs to get done. And most of them need to get done fairly quickly. So as more people come up and you have additional officers at staging, I want to help. What can I do? I want to help. What can I do? This is a, this is an important consideration. Like, Hey, have we thought about the hospitals yet? And if you have extra resources, start, start getting them out to the hospitals. All right. So let's bullet point off some of the security tasks that need to be done at a, at a hospital. So uh, obviously securing ingress and egress, is that, on the list. Yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, what else? Crowd control. Right. right. Traffic control. Traffic so, control. Yeah, media. Media control. Um, what about inside? You secured ingress and egress, but don't we need some? Just the presence puts ease of mind for uniform the presence. people that are there. I think mm-hmm. it's important to understand that we're not there. It's the hospital's responsibility for patient care. No doubt. It's our responsibility to provide a safe environment for them to provide that patient care, whether that's ease of mind on them, that they're not going to be attacked while they're trying to provide patient care. You look at all those situations we talked about, you know, we're limiting access into it. You know, those are all responsibilities that can often overwhelm the security component of the hospital. And it's our job to reinforce that, to give them a safe environment, do everything they can to save these patients. So and- here's a question I'm going to throw in. And Pete and Ron, you guys both have or are doing hospital work. So let me put this one to you specifically. Uh, let's use uh, a fairly typical community hospital, 150 to 200 bed community hospital. And they've received half a dozen to a dozen patients from an active shooter event that may have had 30 or 40 shot. So they've got a load, but not all of them. What's the, in your mind, the minimum number of officers that you're going to need to send over there to supplement whatever security they have uh, to secure it, provide traffic control, crowd control, and to be a visible presence and deterrent. What what are you thinking in numbers? I think a squad level size, eight to 10 people. Yeah, and the reason I say 10. that is some of the community hospitals, depending on the number of fixed posts they have at the hospital, they may only have five security officers with two fixed posts. So that means they've got three people that can provide all these other resources. That's just not enough in these type of situations. So it would be probably a squad level response. Or once that squad arrives and they determine we could probably handle it with five, then they can cut it back. But I always go on the auspice. I'd rather have more and turn them away than need more and have to wait for them to respond. So I'd agree. I was just say eight to 10. Um, and we got to remember the hospital was already in operation with hundreds of other patients. And, and depending on the time when. And may still be receiving act, patients right. from other events. Right. Other events. The active shooter event took, took place during the day, you know, definitely higher concern. Uh, nighttime, a little bit later in the morning, maybe not, but who knows on a weekend. So there's a lot of, a lot of variables that the hospital has to deal with. And I just uh, circle us back to, you know, your relationship in your own jurisdiction of how you train with your hospitals during their MCI events. Are you a part of their instant command when it stands up? Are they a part of your monthly EOC briefings and emergency management exercises that we train together with so that when we walk in the door, 
it's not the first time looking at a face on game day, you know, Hey, I'm so-and-so can I, you know, come into your incident command and they have no idea who we are. So. And uh, so before we leave the squad size, cause I want to do a follow on that. So the squad size of eight to 10, how many supervisors we send in one sergeant or a couple sergeants? I think initially start off with one Just and one. then make a determination if you need to scale up from there, because that one can direct again, span of control and you need a command are both important. Mm -hmm. So they can control that number, but if it's a more dynamic situation, you may have to send more squads and more supervisors. Well, that was going to be my next question. So let's now scale up to a large metro hospital, 500-plus beds. How many are you going to need then? And they got 30, maybe 40, 50 patients, 500-bed hospital. Uh, I think he's going to say the same thing I am is, you know, we're moving to double that, that initial response Two supervisors, probably, you know, 10 to 15 officers somewhere in there, maybe upwards is 20, uh, just depending on what, what's g going on at the time. Yeah. Remember we're supplementing their ongoing processes. Mm -hmm. Are they already screening everyone that's coming in? I know that, you know, when we screen patient or patient visitors, we're using x-ray and we're using metal detectors. That's going to continue. All we're doing is supplementing what they've already got in place. We're not taking over mm -hmm. what they're doing. We're simply there to add a more robust response yeah. to their situation. And I would say the reason you need more is you may not even be supplementing that much inside. Right. But I can tell you that um, whether it's on social media or um, uh, one family member gets word that their person was transported there, the cars that arrive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've ever and been where in a, they park and right, if you've ever been in a hospital parking lot, they're full all the time. So if 30 extra family members are arriving, 60, a hundred extra family members are arriving and they're panicked and they're pulling right up to the emergency department and they're parking wherever they can stop. So I think helping on the outside is a supplement that we that we would probably need to do even before we try to go inside and help with some of the existing processes. And that 30 that Adam talked about may be, in fact, 30 for a family. Right. You know, we got one victim, yeah. we got 30 people showing up because they all knew and everyone's going because they need to be there. And, that's, and that can quickly overwhelm the sure. system. That's and, just from the logistics standpoint of it with mm -hmm. saying the hospital doesn't have any type of threat issue with it. Um, we had a local incident here where the bad actor showed up at the hospital, you know, trying, it was a domestic incident. Mm -hmm. That you know showed up showed up at the hospital. Now everybody there became a threat. So right. what officers are on scene to be able to respond to the threat still handle the logistics of what's going on and then, at the hospital. And then I don't want to go too far on a different tangent, but if you did have an injured police officer transported there, now you're dealing with multiple law enforcement officers showing up to show their support, which right. is the brotherhood of the police is you know, and same thing with the fire department. So now you need somebody of, of a significant rank there, you know, in any, and again, this is kind of a different tangent, but just managing, you know, those types of folks that are coming to the hospital as well to support, right. you know, their, their brother in arms or their fellow firefighter or EMS person. Right. So it's an additional management issue at the hospital that falls back on us completely. And from a management perspective, we now have to ask ourselves, is this too much for the incident command of the active shooter event itself? And how do they, how do they section that off? Does it become just a branch and you, and you call the next arriving supervisor of good rank to say, Hey, you're going to be in charge of the hospital branch and you need to start thinking about divisions or groups of each hospital. Right. Um, or is, does it become a command all on its own? You know, that, um, my, 
I think my preference would be because there's so much information you still need from the hospital at the original scene, I would just make it a branch. I would immediately delegate it as a hospital branch um, and, and let somebody be in charge of all things hospital. Yeah. And Adam, I would tend to agree with you. It was, it was uh, it's funny that you went there because I was just thinking about bringing up the management component of this conversation because the numbers you guys are talking about are not small numbers. No. And in fact, for some communities, it could be quite a strain to have a presence at the scene and at two or three different hospitals as they need to do this. But I think that that management piece, I would agree with you in simplest terms, it would be nice to have it a branch and have it roll right under, and we have consolidated communications. We put it on a different radio channel, all that kind of stuff. That makes a lot of assumptions about the size of the jurisdiction, the capabilities of the systems. If those hospitals are in somebody else's jurisdiction, it may make practical sense from um, a just a getting it done thing to have that split off and have them establish their own command that we coordinate with an area command. Do At what point does it trip into, we're going to manage it under the umbrella of the, of the scenes incident management versus, okay, I think this has gone big enough with the investigation, coordination, reunification, which we haven't talked about yet, and all of that, that maybe we do need to overlay an area command, which could also coordinate with the hospital's each of the hospitals incident command system those hospitals god love them um you know you, you ask them and they'll tell you they use hicks hospital incident command system great you know how do you use it yes we use it yeah but how do you we we use it um <laughs> and we all know from exercises we participated in their understanding of how that functions is a little bit limited and can cause some operational challenges when we're trying to manage all that but to me, I think it becomes a function of how big is the event, how many sites or facilities are involved, how many jurisdictions are involved. Are they all in my jurisdiction mm -hmm. or is every one of them in somebody else's jurisdiction because sure. I'm a small city? And I think all of that plays into the decision making. I also think you shouldn't be afraid to change gears. Right. If you do it as a branch – and about the time you stand up the third hospital's worth of security, you realize that this is becoming difficult to manage. You're having radio problems. You can't quite control it. It's just getting too much. Then maybe you do. You know, by that point, the police chief, the fire chief, the rest of the backup has showed up. Your EOCs are starting to stand EOCs up. EOCs are standing up. Get an area command stood up. Right. And, and, and Pete took the words right out of my mouth. That's a, that's a great opportunity for your emergency managers at the county level because um, they have some plans in place for those uh, types of MCI or surge events uh, that maybe they can implement some of that. But I'm a big fan of delegating big parts of your incident off to someone else to be in charge of that so you're not overwhelmed trying Agreed. to think about too many uh, things at one time. And, and if you have, that's, that's even a job you could call a neighboring county for and say, you know what, we don't need any more help at the scene. However, if you can send your ranking person and about 25 officers over here, please help us at the hospitals. And you're now just delegating it off to do some follow-on resources. And again, to hit on what Bill said in his comments was, we're there to support the hospital at the time. Yeah, they've got their hicks stood up. We need to make sure we integrate with their hicks. That's why I always go back to training ahead of time mm -hmm. is the critical part. They may have a different view of what we're going to provide and do once we get there than we actually have. 
And when the incident's happening is not the time to, for them to find out now, we're going to go in there, we're running rough shot, or we're going to sit back and wait for the hospital to tell us what to do. They need to know what our capabilities are. We need to know what theirs are. We need to talk about expectations on both sides. And then we need to share the responsibility for this incident because we don't want them to think that, hey, we're just coming in to run this thing. And, you know, it's I go back to the old days when the fire department was well-versed and well-practiced in incident command and law enforcement wasn't. And then you figure the fire department was just going to come over and take over the scene. That's not going to happen. But it's the same way with the hospital. You know, although they may run things different, they run it the way that it serves the hospitals. And we've got to have that understanding. Sure. We've got to support their efforts. Yeah, I mean, Ron, you and I have been a part of the planning with the hospitals over the last uh, 10 years or so here in, in Central Florida. And, and we've seen where we used to what maybe with MCI training events, two or three hospitals. Now we're three and four counties, right. yeah, 15, 15 hospitals all playing in, in the event for the sure. day. It's uh, They've really come yeah. around. All right. So I'm going to move us on to our final. I want to talk about reunification and we've already hit our 30 minute mark. So let's talk a little bit about reunification and then we'll, we'll wrap this one up. What role does the hospitals play in reunification with us when we're standing up reunification as part of our incident? I think the important thing is understanding that reunification is going to occur. If we control it from the onset, we may be able to save not only our efforts, but the hospital efforts at that time. And the reason I say that is because if we don't designate a reunification location, then everyone that doesn't know where to go is going to go to the hospital. I can tell you from experience, <laughs> that's, that's where they're going to show up. <laughs> right. So if we can set a reunification and then we can get them on the front side with us, then we can work out how to do that reunification that still complies with their HIPAA responsibilities and everything else. They want the same thing that we do in public safety. They want these people reunite with their family. They want someone there that can help them make medical decisions during that time. And it's critical for them. What we can do is, again, initially set a reunification area and get them worked in with us because we're already involved in their incident command system. So we can get someone from the hospital there so we can work it out so we have plans ahead of time instead of having, you know, 5,000 people show up front door to the hospital. Sure. And, and as we've seen in other incidents, though, let's say everything does go according to plan. We have a really good reunification uh, set up at or near the scene, and we go down our list and we find, oh, well, Mr. Smith, your son was transported to Memorial Hospital. He was one of the injured. We may not want Mr. Smith to jump right back into his car and try to drive to the right. hospital. And we want to know who he should see when he gets there, right? So he can get – so reunification involves some people learning that their family member has been transported to a hospital. And then they want to go there, right? Rightfully so. So now how do we you know, keep doing our part to make sure that that connection happens effectively? I think the success of reunification all comes down to the power of information. Mm -hmm. If we do our job. You get everybody transported off of the scene. Once the injured are taken care of, that next priority is to clear it. But while you've got contact teams and tactical working on the clearing operation, fire and EMS job is not done. They should immediately begin circling back with law enforcement and the investigative team and trying to put names to every patient that was transported in, into the ambulance. Because if we're doing our job, we should be 
the focus of the information so that when little Johnny's dad shows up or Sandy's, you know, mom shows up, we've got answers for them about where they are and what the situation is. One of the things that has has frustrated me to to no end uh, is this this talk about how you can't call it the reunification center because not everybody gets reunified. And I, I think not only is that super short-sighted and just a ridiculous talking point, but it's absolutely false. Everybody does get reunified one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets reunified, um, whether they're uninjured, injured, or tragically a fatality. We got to get them reunified, and we have to have answers for all those questions. And to your point, Adam, you know, somebody's injured. Okay, Mr. Smith, let me take you to the hospital. Well, I don't want to leave my car. I'll get somebody else to drive your car right behind us. I'm going to walk you in through security. I'm going to introduce you to somebody that's going to be able to give you answers and hopefully take you to, you know, little Johnny's side or, you know, uh, the, the, the flip side of that is, is, you got to do a death notification and it's a horrible thing to do. It's a horrible thing to do, but it doesn't end with just telling them that there's a lot of questions that come up mm-hmm. and we need to be prepared just as, as if we're taking them to the hospital and guiding them, we need to be prepared to answer those questions and and guide them through the other thing, hence the family assistance center. So I think it's a, I think it's incumbent upon us as public safety to do our job to initiate when it's needed, those reunification elements quickly, early, and to take it very seriously and to realize that it's still a very integrated team effort between law enforcement, fire EMS, and the hospitals. And Ron, to your point, if you haven't planned and worked it out ahead by policy, which by the way, some communities have done, They have done interlocal agreements that have been signed off all legal through the contract review that allows the hospital to provide names uh, to law enforcement and fire EMS for the accountability in these types of events. And if you, if you haven't done that ahead of time, that's one to put on the list because you should do it ahead of time. But if you haven't done it ahead of time, get a uniformed cop over there to start getting answers. Sure. And and just to extend on what you're saying again, that's a place where emergency management can also help as well. Your right. your local emergency managers. Um, so there's two things there, and I think to your frustration, sometimes they're conflated into thinking that it's one thing. Reunification is very much a, a response issue. Family assistance is part of recovery, but we we know that response and recovery overlap, especially early yes. on in these incidents, and they should overlap. But um, planning ahead for what happens with those that have been transported, what happens with those families that are getting the most terrible news of their lives, um, and how emergency management can help bringing the, those resources simultaneously. Your scene right. may still be working, but if you make that one call to a plan that's already in place, you can get those this second part of it rolling already. Yeah, Bill, we talk about our, our, our two priorities, right? The bad guy and the clock. Well, the hospital is a part of that clock. The, it, the end of that clock could end at the hospital, either saving that patient's life or them passing away. And our response and responsibilities to help hospitals uh, be as successful in the event also could be as simple as keeping a, an emergency lane open. The ambulance can even get there from overconvergence of people trying to find out about their folks you know, being transported to a hospital. So, you know, it, it's important that, that we look at that as a, as a full on responsibility as a, of our event. 
and maintain the understanding that reunification is not only a function, it's also a location. And if you set a reunification location, it allows you to have a controlled method of bringing those people into their loved ones instead of just mass chaos where everyone shows up. Now you got, what do I do now? Yeah, indeed. A, it's a difficult topic. Uh, no question about it. I think it's very personal and passionate to all of us because we've all been one form or another in those shoes, uh, but a very, very difficult topic. So, you know, at the end of the day, we can't assume that our job is over just because the ambulance has left the scene and gone to the hospital. There may be more needed from us. Now, in the in the smaller events, when it's three or four people shot, that's a lot easier to manage. But in the larger events where you do have a true mass casualty incident, the hospital may need assistance from us in ways that we hadn't thought about ahead of time. And Adam, to your point, does emergency management even know to bring that up and coordinate that planning? Because if there's one thing EMS really good at doing is pulling people together to lay out the plans and to have those conversations. And, and I think that can save a lot. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for the time and the passion on this topic. Uh, I want to say thank you to our producer, Carla Torres. And if you haven't liked or subscribed the podcast, please do so. Uh, wherever you consume podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, uh, give us the su subscribe thing. If you have some questions for us or topics that you'd like to suggest, please email them to info at c3pathways.com. So it's info, I-N-F-O, at c3pathways.com. Thank you guys for being here again. Please tell everybody that you work with about this. Uh, this doesn't work unless we get the message out. So pass it along, include people you know, send the links out. And until next time, stay safe.